as those children are leaving, it reminds me that our outreach we had for Trunk or Treat last Sunday, I didn't give you an update during our welcome time, but the parking lot had a lot of cars in it. We had a lot of people who were here dressed up in their biblical costumes and their characters. It was just a great time. And we had ultimately 89 kids that came to the church and received some candy and stuff for the weekend. So it was a good outing for us. It was a good start to maybe something we can advance even and have more of next year for, for a, something alternative to Halloween and maybe a little fall festivation or something like that we can plan for next week as well as we get that thing started again for each year. But it was a great outing with 89 kids coming. That's pretty good. So this morning, as the children now in their church, we're going to stay in here. We're going to turn again to Revelation chapter 2 and once again return to the situation, the city, and the church of Pergamum. Pergamum, we started last week. We didn't quite get through it all. We had a lot of specifics we talked about in relation to some things happened to Pergamum. You over here, you may remember, it's the third church of the seven that we're having in our series pertaining to the seven churches. If you note by the map that you'll see behind me now, you're going to notice that Pergamum, as the third, continues its directional from, from Ephesus being the first to Smyrna, and now Pergamum a little bit more north of Smyrna as it continues to make its way clockwise through all the seven churches. So that's Pergamum, but again, a little bit more information that we need to know about Pergamum, the city, is again, it's just another wonderful, beautiful city. We talked about Smyrna being a wonderful, beautiful city. But maybe Pergamum is more breathtaking. Scholars even refer to it as something that's stunningly beautiful. As it was situated and built up on a rocky hill where it could overlook the Mediterranean Sea and just have a breathtaking view. It also boasted itself as the capital of Asia. Which means then that maybe you haven't had more stuff going for it since it's the capital than even they had available to people living in Smyrna. But as the capital, then, there's many perks. I mean, it had an extensive library. We may not think about 200 volumes of publications today being a lot, but in that time of day, in that ancient world, that was the largest library on record. It had a temple built to Caesar Augustus. He made his royal city where he'd like to come and spend time, especially when it got a little cooler. They had another temple built to the Dionysus, the god of the royal kings. And they had a healing spa. A healing spa which had a temple built to Asclepius. Then Asclepius actually had a hospital associated with it, with the temple, that maybe we could parallel that great hospital that day to the Mayo Clinic of today. So, again, there's a lot going for the city of Pergamum that offers a lot for the people who live there. It's a beautiful city, it's the capital of Asia, and there just seems to be a lot going on. But as we learn all that about Pergamum, the thing that we must know, that we focus on once again today, is that the thing that happened there more than anything else, most frequently in Pergamum, is that it had this false, idolatrous worship. It infiltrated the church, and as it infiltrated the church, like it often does, it corrupted the people who lived there, or who, who went to congregate there, and the church believers. People, scholars who study Pergamum in the seven churches, refer to it as a morally dark place. Let us read the text once more, as we've learned some things now, get out of the city to refresh ourselves. But let us read the text once more, in which 
John writes pertaining to the church at Pergamum. Stand with me, if you're able to, as we learn again about Pergamum. And we see then this described as a compromising church, also morally dark. John writes in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel at the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. You do not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon in war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, so that no one knows except the one who receives it. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this reading of the word today, Lord, as we go back again to the city and the situation and the church that's occurring in Pergamum. We pray, Lord, as we begin to understand the situation occurring in Pergamum, that we would take that, what we learn, and begin to apply it now to our lives and also to the church today. Lord, we ask that your spirit will lead and guide and direct us so let us understand how this text is still relevant today and how the church today still may be like the church then, compromising their beliefs. So with that, Lord, by the end of this message, let us be able to stand firm in our beliefs and our values and upon your word. Lead and guide now, Lord. Let this be your words rather than mine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I've had a bit of a cold this week, so i got a cough drop. you have to excuse me for a while as that thing begins to take care of itself. But notice we begin the message in verse 13. This is where we start for this morning. Verse 13 is partly meant to be accommodation. Christ refers to the beautiful city, though, in the midst of accommodation as Satan's throne or Satan's seat. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, referring to the city of the church. And as we read that, then we begin to understand that no wonder scholars label the city, the church especially, as a morally dark place. For anywhere that Satan dwells, there must be a pit lacking in morality. Certainly a dark place indeed. I mentioned it last week. It's worthy to mention it again today that J. Vernon McGee simply says in reference to Pergamum, it's just called Satan's headquarters. So suffice it to say that God is not at all pleased with the compromising believers within the church. Yeah, verse 13 does tell us about a remnant that is steadfast in the faith, such as Anipus, as it mentions verse 13. But overall, as you look in verses 14 and 15, God is not pleased because they've compromised their beliefs. They've accepted the teachings of Balaam, and they had the practice of the Nicolaitans. So basically, the believers in the church of Pergamum have gravitated to accepting false teaching and practices 
that directly contradicts the word and what they know to be true. Let me say that once more to make sure you hear that. The situation occurring in Pergamum is that those believers within the church have gravitated to accepting false teaching and practices that directly contradicts the word of God and what they know to be true. Now as you hear that a second time, the question is this. Could this happen today? Is it possible that believers in modern churches today could deviate from the word, could possibly accept worldly teaching and practices that they know contradicts the word? Is that possible? Now, last week, we ventured into this a little bit and began to apply the text to say during the current day church, recognizing that only is it possible, but it is happening right now. The issue of same-sex marriage is a hotly debated topic. The Southern Baptist Convention has a very firm position against same-sex marriage and then has been under attack from many LGBTQ groups. But yet, our convention affirms its position by adhering to the scripture, adhering to the Bible, and stating Genesis 2.24 which is a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's our denomination. That's our convention. That's what we're associated with. That's our belief. It has been the belief of many people for many years. But now, in current day, it seems other denominations have changed their position regarding same-sex marriage, such as the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, Oh, how much you may know about this particular church, but they began allowing blessings of same-sex couples in August of 2009. Presbyterian Church USA ruled in 2006 that same-sex marriage is not forbidden. 2014, the General Assembly passed a resolution permitting pastors to sign same-sex marriage licenses. In 2015, when the Supreme Court made it legal state, uh, nationwide, they changed the resolution to two people, traditionally man and woman, but just two people. The United Methodist Church is the most recent church to have the compromise. In June of this year, the General Assembly met and voted to accept same-sex marriage. United Church of Christ, it varies actually by church. They don't dictate any particular thing, but because of that, the General Assembly passed a resolution affirming equal marriage rights for couples regardless of gender. Pentecostal church remains the same. They do not accept same-sex marriage. But notice how a variety of churches are listed. Not particular any of them I'm picking on, but just a, a variety of churches have accepted a new doctrine compared to what we have had in the past. The Southern Baptist Convention still stands for and I suggest to you they've compromised. I mean, while some may not agree, I suggest to you that they have compromised on the issue of same-sex marriage in their churches. But it's not just limited to same-sex marriage. That's a hotly debate topic right now, but it's not just limited to those kind of things. There are more signs of compromising occurring, occurring that leads to corruption, and then churches being labeled as morally dark places. 
you may have heard before the name David Koresh. He was a leader of a particular cult in Waco, Texas, called the Branch Davidians. Koresh, as their leader, regularly used scripture to justify all of his irrational positions upon various topics. Most of Koresh's scripture was based upon his interpretation of Revelation. So interesting how he could use a scripture to make his situation meet the Bible. Similar, if you will, to what's called the Unification Church. Unification Church, I learned, was founded in 1954 by Reverend Sun Moon Moon. Sun Moon Moon. Hmm. He proclaims that at the age of 16, he received a vision in which Jesus told him to complete the task of establishing God's kingdom on earth. So he went about doing that. Moon died in 2012. Listen to this. His wife is now left with the ministry. Regard her as the Messiah and mother of humankind. In February 2018, an offshoot of the Unification Church formed called the Sanctuary Church. In that month, on the last day of the month on the 28th, they held a special blessing ceremony in which his congregationist members was encouraged to bring AR-15 assault rifles which they called the Rod of Iron. They had a blessing ceremony with the rifles at the church. And they justified all that because of the end of times written by Matthew in 25, 1-13 as their justification. And I could go on. I mean, in these situations, notice how believers are duped. They're misled. They're completely astray. I mean, they simply accept what the leader tells them to be true, even if it contradicts or violates what we know to be written in the Word. It's amazing. It happens all the time. And it can happen with our young people. That's the scary thing. It's already happening today, and our young people sometimes fall to this. So to avoid being misled, we've got to know Scripture. We must test everything to the Word. I mean, there are an abundant amount of false teachers and preachers today that are leading many believers into compromising positions. Jesus spoke about the fact that there would be, on his sermon, Mount of Allah, Mount, uh, sermon of Mount, in Matthew 7, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You recognize them by their fruits. I mean, to avoid the compromise that sometimes occurs in believers' lives, we have to be like a group called the Bereans. After the upper one Thessalonica, Paul and Silas traveled to Berea. Essentially, Paul was preaching and teaching about Christ. But the Bereans, which are hearing this, are not immediately sold to the truth. So notice what they do in Acts chapter 17. You notice in verse 11, when they're hearing Paul and Silas talk about the Christ, the risen Son of God, they notice in verse 11, when hearing that they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures, though daily, to see if these things were so. So notice when they heard something that they didn't know about, they went immediately to the word to make sure it was true. The point is this, that the same thing applies to every one of his believers. To avoid the compromise, we should test or check 
everything to the Word, to the Scriptures, to the Bible. Paul stated in 1 Thessalonians 5.21 to test everything and hold fast to what is good. What is good that we should hold fast to? I suggest it's the Word of God. To be, avoid being duped, misled, to avoid a compromise, we should test and check everything through the Word of God. Everything. Everything that we've run across. I mean, even if I tell you something, you should fact check me to the Word to make sure that is true. Don't take my word on it. Take the Bible's word. If only the believers, though, in Pergamum, would have had that same position, if they would have stood firm upon the word and not compromised in their beliefs, the church would not have referred to as Satan's seat. When they started making some compromises, when they started accommodating, tolerating other things, corruption set in, compromise began, and Satan capitalized. I mean, listen to this. Anytime there is a compromise of your faith, and of your beliefs. Satan is involved and ready to divide and conquer. Peter's experience provided wise counsel when he said in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's a resist him. Stand firm in your faith. I mean, without standing firm in your faith, Without adhering to the word, Pergamum happens. Compromise sets in. And once compromise happens, it only leads to corruption as orchestrated by our enemy, Satan. I mean, in short, that is precisely then what happened to the church of Pergamum. That's why it is known as the compromising church. They were once a church built upon the foundation of God, but soon compromised and accepted pagan idealism. So compromise with pagan morality and departure from biblical faith soon corrupted the church to become a morally dark place. It's still possible today. It still happens today, unfortunately. But when hearing that, you say, well, wait a minute. I mean, there is that remnant. I mean, let's just back up a little bit because we should have some sympathy for these believers. I mean, now, maybe they're young, maybe they're immature, and they're easily led astray. So let's just run with that thought for a minute. Because, yeah, Pergamum had a lot to offer. We identified the city as beautiful. It has this big library. It has all these kind of ideas. So a lot of different things did exist in Pergamum, which means it's probably difficult for a believer to fit in in that environment. And so I'm sure then the believers experienced great pressure to compromise or to leave their faith. I mean, it might be speculative, but how? Well, I would even suggest that believers then experience great pressure to compromise or leave their faith. Why would I suggest that? Because the same thing still happens today. There is more activity, there's more distractions, there's more things available today than any other time in history. I mean, to stand firm in your beliefs today is a struggle. 
All this pressure exists to conform. So yes, it's a struggle. But when you take a position, when you begin to stand firm upon the foundation of God, the Bible, your faith, your beliefs, you got to know you're going to be labeled as intolerant and just narrow-minded and uncompromising. But when you stand firm and that's the label they attach to you, I say take the label, accept it. Avoid the pressure to compromise your beliefs. Stand firm to what you know to be true. The absolute word of God. Do not compromise. Maybe I should insert here the compromise can be a blending. A blending of qualities of two different things or a concession of principles. Which is like a bunch of words all mixed together in a definition, which is pretty simple to do. But an example might help clear the air. As an example, I, I mean, a compromise occurs when I can, say a parent states a curfew is at 10 o'clock for their teenage son or daughter. But the teenager does not want the curfew to be at 10 o'clock, do they? So the curfew for the teenager is ideally midnight. So they begin to discuss the two differences, 10 o'clock versus midnight. And they come up with a resolution, a blending of the two or a concession. They agree on 11 o'clock as the curfew rather than the original position. That's a compromise. And perhaps that compromise don't sound so bad because they found some common ground and it worked out. Another situation which compromise may be good would be within a marriage. I make many compromises in my marriage and probably most men in here do too. <laughs> But marriage and a compromise kind of goes together because you don't want one person all the time getting their way. So you must make a compromise. Again, a compromise in that time is a good situation. But listen, when it comes to the Word of God, there should be no compromise. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 32. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand. Or to the left. But it's tough living in a world today and not compromising. The temptation to compromising is heightened by the fact that there's, there's fear. Fear is being rejected or criticized. I can only imagine what these teenagers face when they go to school with the peer pressure. Because that fear, rejection of ridicule, being compromised, I mean, uh, uh, being criticized. Is in every facet of life. I mean, it certainly is in school. It's certainly relationships. And it happens to be out there in the workforce. We feel it. But what makes compromise so dangerous is the subtle way then it really approaches. And compromise, by definition, doesn't involve a wholesale surrender or acceptance to worldly ways of ideas. Rather, it just accommodates them. Now think about that. A compromise is really just an accommodation of some new idea if you begin to accept it. One of the scholars I was reading used this as an example. He said most of us are recoil at the thought of tossing Jesus aside and embracing an idol. But compromise never asks you to do that. Compromise says that we can have the idol and keep Jesus too. 
there's room on the shelf for one more object of worship. And what's the harm? We still have Jesus. That's the kind of compromise we're referring to here. That's the kind of compromise that happened in Pergamon. That's the kind of compromise that's creeping into the hearts and minds of believers today. To just accommodate and to tolerate. Especially the young people today. I mean, there's times then the compromise can be a good situation. It can be good for individuals. I mean, it can be even good for the church. I mean, if we're arguing over the church color of the carpet, let's compromise. There should be no argument over the color of the carpet. We can make a compromise. If we're debating, John and Dan, about which is the best vehicle to drive, Ford, Chevy, Toyota, Dodge, we can, we can compromise on what is the best vehicle to drive. We can even compromise later if you're going out to eat after the service. Those things are maybe acceptable compromises. But the point is that we cannot compromise over values and standards that we know to be true and essential to our faith. The virgin birth, no compromise. The resurrection, absolutely not. The authority, inerrancy, sufficiency of the word, no. It is the absolute truth. The lordship of Christ, no compromise. The gospel incorporates all our beliefs. There is no compromising position. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. It's not Jesus plus something. It's only Jesus. So these things must be firm in our hearts and our minds with no compromise. To compromise upon these things can lead to corruption. So what we learn from Pergamum is essentially we have to stand firm as a church, as individuals, as a body of believers together. We have to stand firm upon our beliefs. Do not let the outside world begin to influence us, as some others may have already begun to happen. But then if we stand firm like we're learning from the church of Pergamum, the next question maybe consider is, what do believers gain then from standing firm and do not compromising? And the answer to that then is going back to the text and finding verse 17. Verse 17 says, To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. There's been a lot of controversy, a lot of debate, over verse 17, over many different years. And the debate seems to center upon the hidden manna and the white stone with a new name on it. So some scholars suggest then that the hidden manna, we find in verse 17, may simply refer to Christ as the bread from heaven, the unseen source of the believer's nourishment and strength. And that may be spot on. That may be precisely what it is. But there's still the controversy that seems to exist about the hidden manna. The other one is the white stone. A variety of opinions seems to exist, but most scholars seem to agree that the, white, the color white is often associated with holiness. And more probably, the white stone may be merely John's reference to the imputed holiness and righteousness of the overcomer, the conqueror. So there is some debate, but that's what we receive. The hidden manna and the white stone for new name written. But listen, taken as a whole, 
the message to the church in Pergamum is a warning. It's a warning against compromise in morals and teaching and against deviating from the purity of the doctrine required of us as Christians believers. I mean, we just cannot compromise our beliefs. The Bible has not changed. It is solid. It is unchanging. It is the, it, it's a doctrine that is sound and proven. But unfortunately, the doctrine of many churches today is changing. Many churches today are compromising. I am so glad Crossroads is not one of them. Many churches today are beginning to imitate the world. And their idea behind some of them imitating the world is they think they can attract more believers if they imitate the world. I say simply stand firm on the word. But notice then that the condemning feature that seems to exist at Pergamum is that they then just, they allowed it. I mean, they tolerated it. They accommodated the practice of the Nicolaitans, the doctrine, they compromised their beliefs and accepted the teachings of Roman pagan system. I mean, they just let it infiltrate the church about stopping it. We cannot allow that to happen. Dr. David Jeremiah kind of puts in perspective, he says the sin of Pergamum was the toleration of evil. The worldly standards had crept into the fellowship. Today is the same worldly spirit within the church that makes it difficult to distinguish between the actions of Christians and the lifestyle of non-Christians. When those who call themselves Christians commit adultery, cheat in business, or lower or more standards to suit the situation, they fit into the Pergamum mentality. Now that's a lot, but I'm going to read that one more time. Dr. David Jeremiah said the sin of Pergamum was the toleration, the acceptance, the accommodation of evil practices. The worldly standards crept into the fellowship. It's the same today. The worldly spirit within the church makes it difficult to distinguish between the actions of Christians of lifestyle and those who are not Christians. When those who are called Christians commit adultery, cheat in business, or lower their moral standards to suit their situation, basically to justify their actions, they fit into the Pergamon mentality. That just about says it all. So then we need to evaluate ourselves. Are we falling into compromise? Are you accepting what the world's teaching today? Are you falling into the, at the, the accepting the world's position when it comes to same-sex marriage and abortion and many other hotly debated topics? I don't know what your answer may be, but listen, think about how the enemy works. Because when it comes to dividing, conquering a church or congregation, when it comes to getting us to accept a different kind of doctrine that opposes the word, or when it comes to us to lower our standards, our enemy does not come to us a full frontal attack. It's not like he's going to pull off Highway 57, come into the parking lot, find a space to park with the Dodge truck, and then come into the parking lot. And then walk into the church. He's not going to walk in that way. He's not, he's not going to have a full frontal attack. 
But he will, in his clever way, unexpectedly introduce a little toleration, a little accommodation here and there. A subtle approach by slithering in the back door and then begin to lead people astray, creating some division and chaos within that again just leads to compromise and corruption. That's how he works. In those subtle little ways. Over time, it begins to get more intense. So we always have to be on guard to the tactics of our enemy. But yet, if we find ourselves today in one of those compromising positions, then we ask ourselves, well, what can we do? Well, we can do precisely what the text tells us to do, what Jesus tells the Christian program to do. We can do precisely because there's only one antidote. And it's given in verse 16, and it's one word, repent. We find ourselves in any way compromising, Jesus says, well, repent. I mean, notice how it's in verse 16 is written and voiced as an imperative, which is like a command. Notice the King James. I love the King James version because now it, it, it says something that I really want to key upon because it says, repent, therefore repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly. And, and the English Standard Version, which we use every week, almost doesn't really sugarcoat it, but it maybe stated emphatically the same to King James. It says, I will come to you soon. I like the King James, which says, repent, I will come to you quickly. Maybe emphasizing the fact that if we're not repenting, if we're not in a position to make sure that we can repent from the compromise we're having in life when it comes to the word, then he's suddenly, quickly going to come, and we could be caught unaware. You'll be caught off guard, unaware, because we went to this compromising position, and we corrupt, allowed some corruption to set in, and we went to what's called the dark side. Our VBS theme was related to Scar Force or Star Wars. I've always found it interesting how Star Wars movie portrays the good versus evil. And the evil labeled as the dark side. It's always the dark side. I mean, many people today have compromised and gravitated to the dark side. Churches are following in suit, gravitating to the dark side. I referred to Pergamos, Pergamum earlier as a morally dark place. But in case you haven't noticed, our world is and has become a morally dark place. The word of God is not welcomed in certain circles and places today. To be a Christian today really is taboo. In our young generation, the leaders of tomorrow they're just simply not pursuing Christian teaching or any biblical worldview at all anymore, as they've already seen evidence of by stating statistics with Generation Z that 4% only have a biblical perspective on worldview. So what are they accepting? What are they being taught? They're accepting the world's teaching, and they're fully engrossed in it. Chuck Colson writes a book, How Now Shall We Live? Within the pages of the book, he talks about a true story of a father who is praying and actually very disturbed about his teenage daughter 
And because he's so disturbed about what's happening, his teenage daughter, what she's been telling him, he decides the right thing to do is to kind of spend more valuable time with her. And one of the ways he wants to spend time with her is to take her to Disneyland. So they go to Disney. And as they're at Disney, his sole intention is to only be there for his daughter, to have the, have the communication doors to open, where he can start talking about the things that she has been discussing with her parents for quite some time. Things like, Dad, I don't want to go to church anymore. What you believe and I believe is different. I don't believe in those things that they teach at church. In fact, I believe what they teach me more in school. I mean, in relation to, but the Bible says in Genesis that God created, he said, but scientists talk about how all things were created. There's evolution, Darwinism. He said, I, those things make sense to me, Dad. What dad believes and what the teenage daughter believes is drastically different. She goes with the Big Bang and the moral the evolution of man. And, and she basically states then to her father, look, if I can't see it, then I can't believe it. And his argue, he doesn't really have much of an argument because she comes back with her dad saying, look, you taught me about Santa Claus. Looking to make sure there's no kids in here. You taught me about Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny, and Tooth Fairy. And Dad, later I found out those things were not real. I couldn't see them, and they're not real. I've never seen Jesus either. So how can he be real? That's the kind of things that kids are accepting today. That's our leaders of tomorrow. They're being forced, if you will, to compromise. And we can't stand for that. We need to try to encourage our young people, especially our young people, to hear the truth, to not gravitate to this dark side. Because sometimes once they're in the dark side, it's hard to get them back. So be prayerfully considering that. Now, if you find yourself here today following those positions, compromise, again, the situation is to repent. And maybe all of us should do that. Because at one point, maybe we've all compromised a certain position in the Scripture. We'll say, well, I know what that Bible says, but that's not meant for me. It's meant for somebody else. The entire Bible's meant for us. Commands and statutes all the same. No matter who we are, it's for us to put into practice. It's not compromise. So maybe it's repent for all of us today that we need to do. Father, Lord, we thank you for this message. We thank you for today, Lord, and how it can speak to us. We find relevancy still through the letters that was written so many years ago with the man of God who was stranded to an island receiving a vision. But it's relevant today, Lord, as much as today was written. So I pray, Lord, today for all of us, believers here together at Crossroads, people, Lord, who may even be listening later, for all of us to not compromise, to stand firm in our faith, stand firm in our beliefs, stand firm upon the word of God. It is absolute. We receive it as truth. Let's accept it and stand firm in it. Or give us, equip us to do so. We pray, Lord, that when we do, we would not get the glory for what we've done, but you would. We pray someone will see something maybe different about us and see us standing firm from the word and maybe even turn to God, to your son Jesus himself. So be thankful today, Lord, for what we've learned. 
and how we can apply it. I pray for all of us today, Lord, to adhere to your view, to adhere to your commands, and give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.